But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His, of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. From the letter of Paul to the Galatians, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. When I turned 16, I had a wonderful 1985 Volvo 740. It was the best car I ever owned. And I started to drive that car to a parish in Dallas called St. Francis. St. Francis, you may know, or I hope you know, or you'll know now, was founded by a Baylor graduate with a degree in classics, of all things, by the name of Homer Rogers in the 1950s. In many ways, it was a parish very much like Christ Church, evangelical preaching with theological depth and gravity, as well as the most glorious liturgy you could imagine. In fact, many of our vestments at Christ Church were used by that parish until their current rector, another Baylor grad, gifted them to us. One of the things that I've loved about visiting St. Francis through the years and even getting to preach there a few times is that the whole place screams the message of the Incarnation. The building is a simple A-frame with wooden walls and brick floors built by hand by the parishioners. It smells constantly, one might say reeks, of incense. A smell which hits you in the face as soon as you enter. And in the liturgy, the people and priests have a habit of genuflecting not only at the words, and was made man in the creed, which is sung, but also at what is called the last gospel, in which the tradition is that you read the prologue of St. John's Gospel at the end of every Eucharist. It was there that the gravity of the Incarnation hit me and hit me hard. These bodily reminders serve to impress upon me the centrality of the doctrine of the Incarnation. That in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption, so that we might know the grace and truth of God in its fullness. For Paul, this happens at the fullest possible time, at exactly the right time, and where everything before had been provisionary, like some sort of schoolmaster or guardian, as he puts it. Figures, analogies, types, law. Now the fullness of faith, faith literally coming into the world in Jesus Christ, the truth itself, or rather the truth Himself, the fullness of salvation is now possible. John puts this by saying that the Word incarnate shows forth the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But right before that, John writes, to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Some translations will put that right. Some translations will put that as power. But either way, it is what is made possible by the incarnation that you and I can become sons, children, daughters of God. During Christmas time, the church during Christmas tide, the church focuses her attention upon the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, and in so doing focuses her attention upon the rebirth which is given to her members by water and the spirit. The son of God became a child so that we should be called the children of God. 
I often remember at Christmas the words of St. John of the Cross. He says, now that the faith is founded in Christ, now that this era of grace, the law of the Gospel has been made manifest, there is no reason to inquire of God in that manner, by this John means visions and figures and types, nor for Him to speak to us or answer us as He did then. For in giving us as He did His Son, who is one, who is His one and only Word, He spoke to us once and for all in this single Word, and He has no occasion to speak further. The fullness of revelation, the fullness of faith, the fullness of time, this Word in the Greek being pleroma, refers to this passive act of filling. Something like how a ship is filled with cargo until it cannot take on any more. Or how a jar is filled with water until it overflows. The New Testament is pointing us to understand and know that what we have received in the Gospel in the fullness of time is not a partial fix to our sinful state. It is the full picture. Nothing else need be said. Of course, we await the fullness of redemption. But the interesting thing about how the New Testament speaks of this is it's something that has already happened. This redemption is both a future reality and a current one. This outpouring of grace and truth is not something which is ongoing, but something that has happened definitively in the face of Jesus Christ. The technical theological word for this is realized eschatology. That is to say that the kingdom of God is realized really and truly in the coming of Jesus Christ into this world. And that even though this universal kingdom is still being drawn out, it is in the end the eschaton that has begun in Jesus Christ. And this tells us something very important. It tells us what we are, whom we are, where we are, and whose we are, while simultaneously telling us what we might become, who we might be, where we might go and whose we might be. What you and I must see is that the end of our lives has already begun. And it is simultaneously that towards which we are drawn. The living and incarnate Word of God, Jesus Christ. The true light. This is the reason that Scripture constantly reminds us that the Christian has already died. Sin has made us a captive to death. But this death has been fulfilled in being joined to the incarnate body of Christ in which we die to the law in the waters of baptism. Satan was renounced. Death was rebuked. And our backs were turned on the anxiety of this present life. Through this sacrament, we were joined in the one body of Christ to one another. Joined to the One who was raised from the dead so that we might bear fruit for God, as Paul puts it in his letter to the Romans. Think today upon the numerous Scriptures that bear witness to this. Paul writes to the Galatians in the second chapter, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but He who lives in me. And to the Corinthians, he says, I die every day. And also, with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world in Colossians. And you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This death is not, however, final. It is a death that is necessary to a new birth and a new life. 
Paul again to the Romans, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. My brothers and sisters, in celebrating the birth of the Son of God in the world, born in human flesh, our hearts are drawn to consider that this new birth, indeed the only new thing that has ever come to pass in creation, a new beginning and a new end was commenced all at once. A new life was granted to you and to me through the body of Jesus Christ, whereby we Christians were made dead to sin and alive to God born truly as sons and daughters of the Most High God. This hope, this end realized and begun in us is given the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit crying out from within, Abba, Father, especially when we are too weak, too depleted, too confounded by sin, when we are in despair. There is a truth embedded deep in this reality of the Holy Spirit bearing witness within us. And that is this, that to be a child with a father is to be a person who lives in hope. You may have known people through the years who grew up without a father. And I often find that they're not only often hopeless, but angry. To grow up as a child with a father means that you know where you are situated in the world how you fit in time as well. It is to say that you know who you are because you know where you came from. The tragedy of growing up without a father or with an absent or cruel father is that a human being can barely tell how they fit in human society, let alone in the world itself. And if you don't know where you are or where you come from or where you're going, how can you know anything about yourself? How can you act with any confidence? And I say this not only to draw attention to the crisis in our world of fatherlessness, which is severe, but to identify that the kind of radical nihilism, anarchy, and aimlessness present in our world has a root cause. This is a particular danger as there are many in society who seek to do things like dismantle the patriarchy. It's an especially a danger as fatherhood is denounced almost wholesale. Mary Eberstadt has recently written in First Things about this, and I would urge you to read this article, The Fury of Fatherlessness. She writes, The explosive events of 2020 are but the latest eruption along a fault line running through our already unstable lives. That eruption exposes the threefold crisis of filial attachment that has beset the Western world for more than half a century. Deprived of father, lowercase f, father, uppercase f, and patria, meaning country, a critical mass of humanity has become socially dysfunctional on a scale not seen before. There is a fury and an anger associated with being without a father. In that anger, we are ruled by chaos and the fundamental suspicion that we are unwanted and if we are unwanted, undesired, it is very, very difficult to live a life with good desires ordered in the right way. If you want to know what fuels the kind of um, radically nihilistic and radically 
uh, uh, self-centered uh, culture and this radically over-sexualized culture, anger is at the root of it and fatherlessness is at the root of that. But consider for a moment what is given in the faith that we proclaim that Jesus Christ is born in the flesh, born of woman, born to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption. Adoption by the Father of all. A new identity. A new family. A new life. Even a new citizenship. All of this has been realized through the incarnation of the Son of God. It is the reason that it cannot be forgotten. It must be constantly remembered so that you and I can live not in the fury of hopelessness or unwantedness, not in rage, but by love and not by anger, and by faith and not by an almost pathological desire to be accepted by those who don't actually care about us. Christmas event brings us to this simple truth that in adopting human flesh, a human nature, God in Christ was adopting us out of His great love. And not just in a symbolic way, and not just in a likeness or in a provisional way, but in the truest way possible. This means simply that our end has already been realized in the incarnate body of Christ. That our life is truly hidden with God. And that perhaps the most pressing proclamation today that you and I are truly wanted is just shown so, so beautifully in the liturgy. Whereby you were called not only to know God and worship Him, but truly to consume, to have fellowship with God and Jesus Christ. A Merry Christmas to all of you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.